Welcome back to Couple of Criminals. This is Mariah. And this is Anton. And we're your average couple reviewing your not-so-average crimes. This episode is number 19 of a 50-part series that we are doing where the episodes are based on a different crime in each state in the United States and are in alphabetical order. So today's case will be based on a crime in Maine. If you are new here or need a quick refresher, each week Anton and I bring you a crime that the other does not know has been selected and reviews the crime and case here on the podcast. If you ever have a case suggestion for a state in the U.S. that we have coming up, please do not hesitate to send us a message on one of our social media platforms with the case or criminal's name. We have a couple listener suggestions that we will be doing in the next couple months, so please send us more. On another note, we recently have been getting back into Criminal Minds, and I honestly completely forgot how good it is. Criminal Minds is one of my favorite crime shows because of the way it dives into the psychology of criminals and the crimes they they commit. I love also how it goes into detail of the victims as well as the perpetrators. Anton and I, we we absolutely love it. Yeah, we've been watching the past, uh, I think we're in, only in season two right now, but yeah. it's been a great show to watch. Yeah, but for both Anton and I, the psychology of all of it is really what interests us both in true crime. The why, the story, the buildup, and the warning signs that people oftentimes disregard. Each case we review is a reminder that those involved are real and that there are victims on both sides of each crime. We appreciate you all being here and look forward to bringing you more episodes, as this is only episode 19. Now, I know you probably all miss hearing Anton give his joke of the day, but today we actually have my father-in-law here, and he will be giving us his very funny joke. The floor is yours, Bill. I saw a toast in a cage at the zoo. The sign said, bread in captivity. (laughs) Thank you very much. Great joke, Bill. Thank you. Today's case I will be covering began on a warm, beautiful day on August 22nd of 1982 in Portland, Maine. Not Portland, Oregon. I, I literally thought Portland, Oregon was what you were about to say. And I was like, we're in Maine. You know, it's so funny. I was doing case research and I just kept reading Portland and my mind just automatically went to Oregon. I am from I'm not going to lie. It takes me back to when I was younger and watched Austin and Allie and they had a show in Portland, Maine, but the other person flew to Portland, Oregon. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. right. Oh, I love that show too. So, like any other child on summer break, 11-year-old Ricky Stetson was ready to go outside and enjoy the fresh air. There was nothing out of the ordinary on this day, so when he left, nothing seemed wrong. He was headed to go out jogging on the Back Cove Trail. This trail was three and a half miles long in total, and man, if Ricky was able to jog that 11 years old... Okay, I was about to ask how old was he. Yeah, that is very impressive. Out jogging. I don't know if you remember, but in... P.E. in like middle school because that's around Sorry, the age. We when? would run like a mile. Oh yeah. When was this? This was in 1982. Okay. So like I said, this trail was three and a half miles long estimated and it was a very popular trail in the area. Sources don't say how far this was from the Stetson home exactly, but it is the 80s and there were no threats. So I am assuming it must have been close enough to their home for the parents to feel comfortable enough to let him go alone and then return home alone after he completed his jog. However, this jog that should have only taken an hour or so turned into Ricky still not being home by nightfall, which was concerning to both Stetson parents. Like any parents would, concern rushed into their thoughts, and they quickly called the police to report their son as missing that same night. As the sun began to rise the following morning of August 23rd, Ricky was still not home, and there was no trace of him anywhere. Later in the day, a motorist driving along I-295 found the body of a boy. 
With the missing boy being reported just the evening before, it did not take very long for the police to match this body found to that of 11-year-old Ricky Stetson. Did you see how far away it was from where he was last seen or like known to be? Um, I believe from... So like from where he was running or jogging to where his body was found? I believe it was a couple miles, but I can't remember if it exactly said. So I, I don't know exactly. The scene that the motorist stumbled upon and that authorities reported to was horrific. Ricky appeared to have been undressed, or at least tried to be undressed, and the killer had stabbed, strangled, and bit him multiple times on his body. With bite marks and ligature marks, one would assume that it would be quick to compare DNA from the markings and quickly find your killer. That or like, yeah, teeth, imprints. Yeah, yeah. But Especially because around that time, that was like probably the main way of identifying d- Identifying people. your killer. But like we all know, it's never that easy. However, there was a suspect the police had who seemed promising from the very beginning, and he actually was arrested. But 18 months after his arrest, this suspect ended up being released because the bite marks found on Ricky did not match the mouth, teeth, and bite frame of the suspects. So authorities and investigators were back to square one in finding who did this to poor little Ricky. Quickly after the release of the suspect, the case went cold and leads dried up. Even in a popular area in Trell, there wasn't enough to tie someone to the scene and the victim. Luckily, this would change and a lead would present itself in early 1984, and we will get to that. Now, it is not quite 1984 yet, so let's go back a little bit. It was about a year after Ricky's murder in Portland, Maine, when on Sunday, September 18th of 1983, in Bellevue, Nebraska, so we're not in Maine anymore, residents began to notice that their regularly thrown newspapers were nowhere to be found. Mailboxes, driveways, porches, even their front lawns had no sign of the newspaper they had looked forward to. Just like you can count on the sun rising and setting, residents of Bellevue could count on their Sunday Omaha World Herald newspaper. The residents knew their local paper boy, Danny Joe Eberl. Danny woke up early in the morning in order to diligently work his paper boy round, but somehow, today he missed a few houses. Well, missed almost every single house in his route besides three. How could this be? Danny just vanished with no trace. Danny's brother was also a paper boy and was working his route that same morning and had not seen his brother, but did remember one thing. There had been a white male in a tan car following him, but nothing ever happened. However, it did stand out to Danny's brother as odd with now that his brother is missing. And this sighting of this tan vehicle with a man had happened multiple times before. So it wasn't something new. So it stood out to his brother as odd multiple times. And he just didn't decide to say anything. Yeah, because nothing had ever happened. Okay. Danny's father came out just a few hours after Danny had vanished and ended up finding his son's bike in front of the fourth house in his paper route. And the bike was untouched. And so were the 67 Sunday newspapers and the bundle in his bag. From the look of it, there was no struggle. It all seemed to just be left and untouched. And he was just scooped up. Yeah. Most likely. Well, what I usually think in these situations is a child is going to be scared. And so they're probably not going to put up a fight if the person or perpetrator is bigger than them or has a weapon. Maybe he might have known this person too. Yeah, that's true too. And that could be why there might not have been a fight. Yeah, I think there's multiple reasons why it looked untouched. Unfortunately, Danny was harmed and was not left untouched. Within a matter of only three days, authorities had found Danny's body. His wrists and ankles were bound tightly with rope, and his body was left in the woods alongside a gravel road, and it was only four miles from where his bike had laid on his paper route. He was disposed of like garbage. 
Danny did not appear to have been sexually assaulted, but he had been undressed, had suffered numerous stab wounds, and appeared to have bite marks all over his body. Now, he was in the woods. Maybe these were wildlife bite marks. No. The bite marks on his body were all human bite marks through the flesh. Now, because this was both a kidnapping and murder, the FBI were called in to investigate and ultimately take over the case and ownership of the investigation. Well, especially if they're putting kind of similar cases together. Now it's also different states, too. Well, just so so you know, Maine has not been connected to this. Okay, so at this time. But if they were to connect it, the FBI FBI would have been ended up taking over anyways. Yeah. So with the FBI now on the scene and taking over leads and all tips, they quickly followed a promising lead that led them to a young male who had been arrested just a week before the crime for molesting two boys. Even with a failed polygraph and faulty alibi, he was released because of the lack of evidence. They then searched for all pedophiles in the area at the time and questioned each and every one of them, but to no avail, they all were no help and the case ended up stalling out and ultimately going cold. A few months passed when yet another young boy went missing. On December 2nd, 1983, 12-year-old Christopher Walden vanished in Papillion, Nebraska. And listeners, if you guys know the name of this city, please throw me some shade because I'm probably saying it wrong. But he vanished in Papillion, Nebraska while on his way to school. Again, this is the 80s, so walking to school by yourself is not out of the ordinary and was probably expected. It's probably typical around this time. Yeah. Walking, biking... Well, and I'm assuming if they had a vehicle, they probably only had a single vehicle. And if the dad was working, he took that. So there was no vehicle even at the home. These are just assumptions for in the 80s. Witnesses report seeing a white man in a tan car and even more information where Christopher vanished from was only three miles from where Danny's body had been found. So our previous victim. Days passed and there was still no sign of Christopher. But just two days later, Christopher's body is found and it is found in a very secluded area about five miles outside of town. This one was different. The attacker had tried to hide the body, and it almost seemed like right after he had been abducted, he was killed. So there was no time between the abduction and the killing. It was quick. Christopher was found stabbed and horribly mutilated. It was another horrific scene of such a young boy. With two young boys now killed within a few months of each other and within just a few miles, there had to be a connection. On January 11th, now 1984, both cases got the big break they needed. A preschool teacher was in the general area of where the murders had occurred and was outside when she saw a man driving in the area that appeared to be suspicious. And he was not in a tan car. So she just felt like he was giving off suspicious vibes. And she followed her hunch and she ended up quickly grabbing a pen and paper and wrote down the license plate of the car. Wow. Yeah. Quick thinking. Yeah, that's some true crime right there. That's great. And when she was writing the license plate down, the man of the vehicle, so the driver of the vehicle, saw her. And he threatened her but ended up fleeing the scene. So nothing ended up happening to the preschool teacher, but she got his license plate. The only problem with this tip from the teacher was that the killer was seen to be in a tan car, like I said. Yeah, and this one And this car was not tan. Luckily, this was a rental car, and it was able to be traced to a man by the name of John Joubert who conveniently had a tan sedan in the shop being worked on at the time, so a rental car was needed till his car was fixed. John Joseph Jobert IV was born on July 2, 1963, in Lawrence, Massachusetts. John was known to be very intelligent and had a very high IQ. 
Unfortunately, he had a lot of trauma in his upbringing, which we see with a lot of our killers. And for John, by the time he turned six, his parents had divorced, his mom had full custody, he despised his father, and they moved to Portland, Maine. John had thoughts about stuff that people should never have thoughts about. He was fascinated with murder and cannibalism. When babysitters... Red flag automatically. Yeah, these are the, the foretold warnings. <laughs> when babysitters would come over to watch the kids, he would daydream not about ice cream and Disney World or the show that was on, but about choking the babysitter and wondering how they tasted. In Maine, he would work as a paper boy and join the local Boy Scouts group. And instead of becoming an Eagle Scout by the age of 16, he had actually instead stabbed a six-year-old little girl with a pencil. He felt strong, and he felt some sort of gratification from this act, even at such a young age. A few days after the stabbing, he went on to take a razor blade and slash at a girl who rode past him on their bike. For both of these attacks, he received absolutely no punishment or connection. This is where we hear the saying about John, the Boy Scout who became a serial killer. John initially lived in Maine, but once graduating from high school, he actually moved to Bellevue, Nebraska. Although a very smart man, he had an urge for the unthinkable, and thankfully, he got what he deserved. When police ran the plates of the rental car, like I said, it came back to that of John Jobert. Jobert at the time was an enlisted radar technician at the local Air Force base. The FBI quickly issued a search warrant for his home and barracks and found rope that was consistent with the rope used to tie Danny. So this was the second victim. Yeah, Danny's the second one. This rope ended up being sent off for additional testing, and it came back that this specific type of rope had only been made in South Korea specifically for the U.S. military. With this evidence and the matching of the FBI profile that they had put together for this killer, so Jobert matched the FBI the behavioral profile. profile. Yeah. Jobert ended up being arrested and taken in for questioning and interrogation. After questioning him for both Nebraska murders, he quickly confessed, and although he initially pleaded not guilty, he ended up changing his plea to guilty. While this is going on, the FBI's head profiler at the time had shared his profile and the case with a group of trainees in Quantico, and conveniently, a police officer from Portland, Maine had been in attendance at this training. Wow, what a coincidence. And he was able to identify the similarities between the Nebraska murders and, and the, the unsolved Ricky Stetson murder in Portland, wow, Maine. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So after doing some digging on his own and probably connecting with the head profiler, it seemed that Jobert had actually been in Maine at the exact time of Ricky Stetton's murder. So like he was in school, most yeah. likely, mm -hmm. when he killed Ricky. Or possibly had just graduated. Or just graduated, yeah. yeah. And because of this, during the time of Ricky's murder and Jobert conveniently being there, they went ahead and they tested the bite marks on Ricky's body and it matched the bite impressions of Jobert's. They had found their serial killer. John Jobert was sentenced to death by electric chair in Nebraska, and because Maine at the time did not have the death sentence, he received a life sentence for Ricky Stetson's Ricky murder. Jobert ended up being executed via electric chair on July 17, 1996. I don't even feel like that was a long time ago. Honestly, it doesn't, although no. we weren't even born yet. But. Yeah, yeah. Jobert, before his execution, and this just makes me sick, he had been asked in an interview if he would kill again if he had never been caught. And he said he would have undoubtedly, and that that actually scared him, that his ability to go on and murder and never be caught was the idea that scared him and worried him the most. 
That is the crimes of John Joseph Jubera IV, or the Boy Scout turned serial killer. Wow. Insane. I know. I honestly, the the great thing about this case is even though it's in the 80s, it was solved so yeah, quickly. Yeah, that was solved really fast. Yeah. And with minimal technology and, technology advancements. and advancements and only what three victims in total yeah it was said i forgot to mention that the third victim was a part of the air force i believe his father was his in father, the air force yeah. so it just kind of was able to connect the dots even more even yeah quicker well and the rope was probably heavy duty rope in the second murder and so that was also somebody had to be tied to military or something like that yeah, to be able to get access to it originally mm-hmm. yeah so i just think it's it's great and like i mentioned earlier yes we we love our true crime shows and yes those are portrayed as fictional and that they're solved within a couple months but in reality this case was actually solved quickly in like the real world like it was so impressive how quickly they were able to solve this catch him and then be done but he did plead plead guilty which makes it go it's faster good knowing for sure. Yeah. That they got the right guy too. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to Couple of Criminals. We look forward to you being back here next week where Anton will be reviewing a crime from Maryland. Until then, this is your Couple of Criminals signing off. Mm-hmm.